It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School at the ANU. And I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. I'm Anagreta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University. It's great to be back with you, Sharon. It is. It was so lovely speaking with Virginia Marshall last week on the Indigenous issues that have been raised, particularly in light of the most recent federal election. It was wonderful to, re- to hear her insights and thoughts both on the challenges ahead and the extraordinary opportunities for, for some transformative change, particularly in acknowledging Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous uh, frameworks. So it was just a great conversation. It really was. It's always great to talk to Virginia. I think those conversations are, are always the types of discussions that kind of help me to think differently, to, to, mm. to open up the way I think. But what was really powerful in the conversation we had last week, I think, Anna Greta, is that in the past it's kind of been – there have been very future-looking future looking discussions with Virginia, you know, how things might change, but that change hasn't felt imminent. We do now, as we've said over the past couple of episodes, have this sense that the kinds of changes that Virginia talks about may actually be possible sooner rather than later. That's right. And so the prospect of hope, the hot prospect of change, uh, and and certainly into a policy landscape which remains really quite intensely challenging, and yet I do think within the Australian society we're feeling a real sense of optimism at this point in time. Today we're going to launch our first mini-series post-election and we're going to talk about some of the challenges that we're facing, particularly from an economic perspective with with rising inflation challenges challenges of interest rates and the cost of living that we're we're seeing across the board in Australia having significant impacts already. Uh, And so we're so proud to be able to begin today's discussion. Policy Forum Pod, of course, is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy here at the Australian National University. You can find out more information about the Crawford School if you visit the website crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. We have an amazing range of degree programs and short courses that are on offer and information on the website is easy to access. And so we are delighted today to be launching the new mini-series on the social impacts of the cost of living and the inflation crisis. Sharon, can you tell me a little bit more about what we're doing today? Yeah, absolutely, Anna Greta. Now, as you've said, the cost of living is a phrase that many Australians and I think people right around the world have become all too familiar with in recent months. We've seen the cost of food of petrol, housing, energy, and many other essentials just skyrocket. Um, And this has been driven by the pandemic. It's been driven by poor policy choices in in some instances. It's been driven by war, and it's been driven by climate change and the extreme weather events that we've been seeing. So we really have a perfect storm of, of problems that have hit us over the past, really the past couple of years. Over the next several episodes, as you said, Anna Greta, we want to go deeper into the causes of high inflation and what we can do about that. But we also want to look at what the impacts are on people's lives and particularly some of the impacts on those who are most vulnerable. This is a policy space that is too often dominated by jargon and very complex terminology. And 
often dominated by ideas that many people just just don't understand or don't normally hear in their day-to-day lives. But these are problems that are not just theoretical economic arguments. They have real human impacts and real human costs. All too frequently, the burden of economic crises are borne by people who are already experiencing disadvantage. We certainly saw that during the global financial crisis, where it was people who were at the margins that suffered most from decisions that were made. While, as we know, the people who were responsible for that disaster often walked away um, bearing very little of the consequences or burdens of the poor policy choices that they had made or the ways in which they had really pursued their rampant self-interest at the cost of all else. So in coming weeks, we'll be exploring the social impacts of this difficult and dangerous economic environment that we find ourselves in. We'll explore what it might mean for poverty, for health, for work, for Indigenous Australians and much more. And we'll talk about how we can ensure that history doesn't repeat itself in terms of the most vulnerable bearing the greatest cost. But on this first episode, I'm really excited to be joined by two fantastic economists from here at the Crawford School, two wonderful colleagues, who help us to get back to the basics in understanding what's driving inflation and how policymakers can respond effectively and equitably. Anna Greta, would you like to introduce who will be joining us today? Yeah. It's wonderful to have Warwick McKibben with us today. Warwick is a distinguished professor of economics and public policy. He's the director of the ANU Centre for Applied Macroeconomic Analysis at the Crawford School. He's also director of policy engagement and the ANU node leader at the ARC Centre for Excellence in Population Ageing Research. Warwick is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, and amongst his many professional roles, Warwick has served on the board of the Reserve Bank of Australia for a decade as a member of the Australian Prime Minister's Science, Engineering and Innovation Council, and as professorial fellow at the Lowy Institute for International Policy, where he was involved in in that organisation's design and development. Welcome, Warwick. Great to be here. Kristen Sobeck is alongside Warwick today. Kristen is a Senior Research Officer at the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute, which is also here at the Crawford School. She's worked as an economist in the International Labour Organization at its headquarters in Geneva and in the Argentinian country office. She was a Fulbright Scholar in 2007, and she's fluent in both Spanish and French, and of course, English. Welcome, Kristen. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having us, having me. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to have both of you. (laughs) (laughs) So we we just wanted to to start with a a kind of a general question that I think there has been a lot of discussion about. And we've heard so much of late about the very difficult fiscal situation that Australia is in. We've heard about all kinds of challenges that the economy broadly is facing. Could we begin by with you just talking us through uh, what it means when we hear about this difficult fiscal situation and, and how concerned you are with the current situation? Warwick, could we begin with you? Sure. Um, so the, one way to look at this is to compare us to other countries. And if you look at Australia's situation, we're about the best fiscal situation of all the advanced economies. So that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is that we've accumulated a lot of debt, uh, up to 40% of GDP in net terms. And again, that's quite low by world standards. But what is needed is to finance that at some point. So once the debt is created, you either have to raise taxes, you have to cut spending, or the usual way when you get into serious fiscal uh, problems is to have high inflation because inflation itself is a tax on people who hold money. And so the inflation tax is always the last resort. But once you get into a very serious fiscal situation, that's normally the way countries have pursued the way out um, over the last 100 years of history or more. Now, when economists talk about the fiscal situation, you clearly know what you mean when you're talking about that. But I think when the general public hear us talking about the fiscal situation, they're not always clear what that means. Are you able to give us a a kind of an economics 101 explanation of what we mean when we talk about the fiscal situation or talk about fiscal policy? Yeah, this is a great question. The best way to think about this is to consider what the balance sheet of the government looks like. So what the government does is it spends, it buys goods and services, uh, it transfers um, benefits to people who are unemployed or people on low income. So it has uh, outflows from the balance sheet and it raises revenue um, 
by raising taxes, income taxes, company taxes, import duties. Uh, so there's a range of, of, of sources of revenue uh, and a, a range of payments. Now, the other aspect of government is this third component, which is the interest on the debt. So once the government has issued debt to society, whoever holds the debt is paid an interest rate on that debt. And so that's also counted in the overall accounts of the government as being part of outlays. And so the difference between the spending on the one side and the revenue on the other side, if it doesn't balance, then the government issues that debt. And so uh, when the budget deficit, which is the difference between spending and taxes, is is positive, a, a higher deficit, then it's the gap is closed by issuing debt. And that debt can be held by individuals, by companies, by superannuation funds and by the central bank. That is a beautifully clear explanation, Warwick, and I think it really helps us to, to kind of set up for this conversation we're about to have. Thanks. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, look, I'm going to follow on from that discussion. I, I think at this moment in time it's probably important for for us as a society to, to work on our economic literacy and I know that so many of our listeners have a public policy background and a deep interest in policy challenges in Australia, an understanding of the economic terms that we're going to be hearing more of in today's discussion and throughout this series. But for the non-economists among us, we were hoping to do to do a little bit of some of this basic framework discussion uh, to start today. Kristen, I wonder if you could help us with inflation. What is inflation? How do we measure it? How do we approach it? Sure, happy to. I guess when we think about inflation, what we're actually talking about is how average prices go up. So you go into the store one day and your lettuce costs $3 and the next day you go in and at the moment it's 10 to $16. So that's generally what we're talking about when we observe prices go up. How is that actually measured in society? Well, the ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, has a survey where they look at the typical Australian consumer And they say, well, what is this typical Australian consumer actually buying? They're buying some food, they're buying some housing, they're buying fuel. Uh, And then they kind of compile and say, well, well, let's, let's see how these prices change over time. And effectively, the basket of goods, however much that basket costs today, they compare the cost of that basket with however much it costs tomorrow, the following day, several months from now, years from now. And the difference in the cost of that basket is is what we uh, refer to as inflation, so the, the change in prices over time. So that relates to the consumer price index, doesn't it? That Precisely, yes. And I just wonder whether during the the pandemic and particularly during the periods of lockdown, thinking back to 2020, uh, how accurately were we able to measure, do you think, inflation and and CPI through that particular crisis? I'm not entirely sure how I might respond to that. I I know there would have been perhaps, Warwick, do you have some views on that? I'm not entirely sure how they were actually doing it during the pandemic. Yeah, I mean. Carrying out surveys. Yeah, and that's what they were trying to do because the weights in the basket were shifting so dramatically that they were trying to do things in in more in real time than they had in the past. And so it was quite complex because it was happening to different states at different points of the shutdowns, et cetera. So it was a very complex task. One thing that ABS did do, though, was increase the data they were collecting generally on a very high frequency. So they were looking at information on credit cards and a whole range of other large sets of data just to give them some idea of what was happening in the economy. Some of that would have fed into the CPI calculations. Most of it fed into the responses of, uh, of the Treasury in terms of the fiscal response. I think it just goes to show how much the pandemic challenged us on all fronts and the normal way of doing business or the normal way of thinking about policy and policymaking um, was really just thrown up into the air um, during that couple of years when we were experiencing so many lockdowns. And I think that takes us into to the next question that I'm, I'm really keen to get your thoughts on, and that is what, how, what, what are the causes of the current crisis that we're facing, and particularly um, what role the COVID-19 pandemic played. Warwick, you and your colleague Roshan Fernando have done a lot of modelling um, around the global economic impact of the pandemic, with a particular focus on Australia and other G20 countries. Can you talk us through what role the pandemic played in the rise in the cost of living that we've seen in, in recent months? 
Yeah, thanks, Sharon. I mean, that's, it's a, that's a complex question because there are so many things happening. Uh, what we did in that early work was, that was before the pandemic, we looked at scenarios from history and projected them into uh, what we knew in January 2020 before the pandemic had been declared. And, and really what was happening when the pandemic hit was, firstly, the public health response was very much um, shutting down sectors of the economy in different countries. But the biggest shock actually didn't come from the government. The biggest shock came from the change in behaviour of households and firms. And so people stopped going to public places. They stopped travelling overseas. Uh, even before the borders were shut, travel changed dramatically. So there was a change in the spending of households and firms. There's also very quickly, once the shutdowns had begun, big shocks to the uh, production networks around the world. So, for example, if you're making a car and you have tyres and seats and all sorts of components, any disruption in any single one of those supply chains meant that the production of the final car was, was disrupted. And this happened right across the economy. So the supply side of the economy contracted at the same time as the demand side of the economy contracted uh, in different parts of the world. Um, overlaying those shifts in demand and supply, uh, you had a very big response by central banks. They basically cut interest rates to zero, and so they were giving away money. And many governments did lots of different fiscal policies, for example, transfers to firms to keep their incomes from collapsing, um, transfers to unemployed, a whole range of different types of spending packages, which led to a massive increase in demand. So all this was happening in a period of enormous uncertainty. And in the end, inflation is going up when demand exceeds supply. And that can happen because demand is strong or supply is weak. And what was happening as a result of the pandemic and after the pandemic, or pandemic's not over, but subsequent to the major, before the vaccines arrived, we had excess demand and it was coming from both sources. Insufficient supply, too much demand, that led to all sorts of price increases because the way to, you know, if something is scarce, the price goes up. And so that, that's where the basic inflation came from. But there was even an inflationary surge building in the background before the pandemic because we had the response to the global financial crisis in 2009 and 10 left a lot of disruption across the global economy for the following decade. And so we had some inertia coming from in, into the pandemic from previous policy mistakes or policy stances. And then we overlaid that with the pandemic. And then we have climate change events particularly disrupting uh, Australian agriculture through the floods in Queensland and northern New South Wales. So we have climate shocks, which reduce supply. We have the pandemic responses, which are incredibly complicated. And then we had the historical inertia of policies coming out of 2010 to 2020. Uh, and so these things all need to be unraveled for policymakers to try and understand how to respond. Uh, and it's different in different countries and it's different across the Australian economy. Kristen, I, I wanted to, to pick up on this issue of that Warwick mentioned around the, the impact of the floods particularly. How important have the floods been in, in the rises that we've seen? You mentioned earlier the increase in the cost of a, of a lettuce from you know, $3 to $10 or $12, and we've seen you know, a range of increases across food items, but, but more broadly. How important are the floods and climate change more generally in increasing the costs of everyday staples? I mean, I think uh, work, as work pointed out, uh, there's been a lot that's happened over the last few years. The floods have been, in a sense, climate change is, is one factor amidst uh, many that's actually contributing to the rise in the cost of food at the moment. Uh, another important one is obviously the war in Ukraine. So you have the impact of, of, of climate that actually affects the supply of something like lettuce, but you also have the war in Ukraine, which has increased the cost of fuel. Uh, and the cost of, of wheat, and, and also the cost of fertilizer. So all three of those things have direct and indirect uh, implications for the food supply and households. So I think that was, when I was listening to work, I was like, yep, he's ticking all the boxes. I think the only thing he may have missed was, was the war on Ukraine, which in a sense uh, increases the prices of fuel, which impact consumers when they fill up their cars uh, and when they heat their homes. But also to go back to your original question about climate change, fuel goes into, the, into fertilizer and also transport of goods. So all of those factors, in a sense, are also contributing to the increase, increase in the cost of, of food. Yeah, Kristen makes a very important point there, actually. Um, 
Thanks for adding that on, Christian. I think that is a, a good point for us to just break this conversation for just a minute and we will come back and continue this conversation with Warwick McKibben and Christian Sobeck in just a moment. So don't go away. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. We're here with Warwick McKibben and Kristen Sobeck in the first episode of our mini-series on the cost of living and inflationary situation we find ourselves in today. Before the break, we were talking about the problem, what it is, why it exists, and now we want to turn our attention to what policymakers are doing, what they should be doing, and particularly we will talk about the role of the Reserve Bank. Before we go there, though, I'd like to get some concept of of the forecast Uh, Before the break, we talked about the factors that have contributed to our current inflationary challenge, particularly the coronavirus pandemic over the last two and a half years, uh, the challenge of climate change and the disruption of extreme weather events, the war in the Ukraine and the supply chain disruption that's arising from that. And then, of course, the factors that were already there beforehand, including the recovery from the global financial crisis. Warwick, I wonder with your crystal ball whether you might be able to tell us if this is a a temporary spike in inflation, perhaps reflecting particularly the the issues with supply through the COVID pandemic of the last two years, or whether we should be strapping in for a wilder ride. What what sorts of challenges do you see ahead for us? And, And maybe there are some historical precedences. Yeah, I mean, that, that is a very good question and probably the most important question that policymakers are facing at the moment. As you look forward, it's important to distinguish between an increase in the price level that jumps up and stays there and one which continuously rises. So when inflation increases, that means the price level has gone up. If the price level doesn't go up anymore, it just sits at a new higher level, then inflation goes back to where it was. And so there is a lot of inertia in the system, which in fact Phil Lowe, Governor of the Reserve Bank, had mentioned is you have this step jump in the price level coming out of the pandemic, even coming out of the war in in, uh, Ukraine. And just it'd be a natural process if that wasn't accommodated by policy or if there was no response to that, it would possibly mean inflation would naturally come down again. What would prevent that from happening is really the second round effects, particularly in other input prices, but the most important being labour inputs. So the question is, what happens to wages? Wages are about 70, 65% of the production bundle for a firm on average. And so if these higher prices lead to higher wages, then those higher wages will then feed back into higher future prices. And so you do have this issue uh, of, a, of a price spiral, what they call uh, price spiral, And we saw that actually uh, in the 1970s. And so a lot of people think that the 1970s inflation was started by OPEC increasing oil prices. The evidence in the economics literature is that is not the case. What happened in the inflation of the 70s was we had a big war in the 60s in Vietnam and the US financed that by borrowing. And that borrowing by the central government was then uh, accommodated by the central bank. So a lot of money was printed at the end of the 60s to help finance the war. That money led into the economy, led to an increase in demand. That demand drove up prices. Those prices were globally being driven up because a lot of countries were pegging to the US dollar. So whatever the US central bank did, all the other central banks were following. And that meant that price increases became more normalised. And that actually gave, given a demand stimulus in the world, particularly for oil, that gave the OPEC countries the opportunity to raise their oil prices. And so we ended up with the liquidity coming from the war and actually coming from fiscal policy, feeding into a price spiral 
because of the energy price shock feeding further into the price shock and then labour markets started to increase uh, wage claims across the world. And so we had this self-perpetuating wage price, uh, energy price spiral and that went on for, for a long time until Paul Volcker decided that he would raise interest rates to bring down the inflation rate in the US. Um, that was at the early, in the early 80s. But at the same time, the fiscal authorities cut back on their spending. So budget deficits, particularly forecasted budget deficits in the US, came down quite dramatically. And, and so there is an open debate that was it the central bank or was it the uh, fiscal authorities finally reining in their debt projections, which led to the decline in demand relative to supply, and was that that caused inflation to come down? So that that is, in a sense, somewhat similar to where we are today. Where we are today is the result of a war against the virus, uh, a war by Russia against the Ukraine, and so we have this fiscal sort of story in the background. But we have the monetary authorities now have a better understanding of what happened in the 60s and 70s. And we see central banks saying that they're going to uh, tighten monetary policy. That means raising interest rates. We hear fiscal authorities uh, saying that they're going to consolidate the, the fiscal position, although this election was very badly timed because both sides of politics in Australia uh, offered very large spending packages. And, in fact, on the 1st of July or when the tax uh, returns start to be um, done after Later this year in Australia, there's about another $8 billion worth of promised spending coming in uh, from tax cuts promised in the past. So there's still a lot of fiscal spending and, and, and tax cutting in the Australian economy, which is going to put further upward pressure on, on prices and on demand. So that's the key issue here is, is will this feed into a wage price, energy price, food price spiral, or will the domestic factors and the foreign factors come together in a, in a luckily a convenient way in which inflation then comes back down to the more normal levels that we've been used to over the last decade. And so we might need to maybe prepare for the worst and hope for the best in this situation. It, it does strike me that the Reserve Bank and, the, and interest rates are a very key part of how we contend uh, with the challenge that is here now and in the future. And Warwick, in a recent interview, you mentioned that the Reserve Bank of Australia perhaps should have started raising interest rates earlier than they did. Could you talk us through the Reserve Bank's role in setting interest rates and, and why you think they should have been raised earlier? Yeah, again, that's 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 a several days worth of discussion, but let me try and uh, and bring it bring it to a summary. So, uh, what the Reserve Bank's role really, when it when it tightens monetary policy, it means it raises interest rates. It makes the cost of money more expensive, and so that has impacts on. Um, people with mortgages, um, people who have uh, income coming from um, interest payments or who have debts based on interest payments. So it, it actually leads to a, a substantial change in demand in the economy. Uh, and it actually does have some impacts on supply because the cost of the interest rate affects the cost of capital and that affects investment, which affects future production capacity. But the main impact is on demand. So the Reserve Bank, if, if demand is rising in the economy above supply, normally a Reserve Bank could raise interest rates to rein in demand to bring it back to supply, and that puts downward pressure on inflation. The fiscal authorities could also do that, by the way, uh, by as we saw in the in the COVID crisis, fiscal policy was very potent in pushing demand into the system by doing very rapid transfers to households and firms. So you can do this with fiscal policy, but over the last 30 years, there's been a switch to give the central bank uh, the, that capacity. Uh, one of the problems with putting that on the Reserve Bank is that in the end, if, if politicians aren't willing to make hard choices, they leave everything to the Reserve Bank to solve. And really, the Reserve Bank can't solve too many things because monetary policy doesn't really create anything. It can destroy things, but what it does is it shifts demand from the future to the present or from the present to the future by moving interest rates around. So that, that's basically the mechanism. When I was on the board and, and even on the shadow board, ANU hosts the shadow RBA board. We have nine academics and private sector economists who vote every month on what should be the interest rate, not what will be the interest rate. Uh, and when you're doing that process, whether you're sitting inside around the actual board or you're sitting uh, outside the board, you look at the where you think the economy will be over the next one or two years. Because once the Reserve Bank changes policy, it takes a while for this to impact on the economy. So it's not like there's someone sitting in Martin Place with a little dashboard and they press a button and all of a sudden demand shifts. 
It's a very slow process. Um, we call this long and variable lags. It's also highly uncertain, and I think that's something that people should really understand, is that monetary policy is not a very precise uh, field. It's, it's a bit of science. It's a bit of psychology. It's a bit of hope. It's also, uh, very importantly, uh, an issue of communication because what the central bank says changes people's beliefs about the future and it changes their decisions on what to buy, what to sell, what to invest in. And so the bank should have been, I think, a year ago looking forward and seeing, if only by looking at the results we did in Roshan Fernando and my pandemic studies, all of all of the all scenarios we did had a rapid recovery. Uh, and that rapid recovery should have been seen by the Reserve Bank. Instead, the bank promised to keep interest rates uh, at very low, zero basically until 2023 or 2024. Now, you might ask, why would you do that? And the answer is, well, once interest rates hit zero, so the interest rate is the uh, overnight interest rate, once that hits zero, the central bank can't theoretically cut it any further. They could go negative, uh, which they did in Switzerland and other countries, but really once you hit zero, monetary policy becomes impotent. So then what you have to do is think, well, okay, I can't change today's interest rate but I can change the interest rate people think they'll be paying in a year or two years or three years. Uh, and so this became the new uh, trendy monetary policy in many countries was to, instead of changing the short-term interest rate, which they couldn't do, was to actually change people's beliefs about the, the future interest rate. And so that's when they started to not only say that they would hold interest rates low for, for a long time, but actually they went out and started buying government bonds at different maturities into the future. And the interest rate, in a year's time is the interest rate on a government bond. So what they were doing was they were buying bonds and that drives up the price of government bonds and the interest rate is the inverse of that. So what they were doing was controlling the yield curve. That was really their last resort and that was where central banks get into a problem because they end up expanding their balance sheet. They have a lot of government debt instead of being in the market is sitting on their balance sheet. So they have to have two stages of, of re responding to an upturn. One is they have to run down their balance sheet, which means putting these bonds back into the marketplace, and that will change expected future interest rates. And then they have to start changing the short-term interest rate. That needs to be communicated extremely clearly. And I think there was a little bit of a problem with the communication of what the bank was trying to achieve. Um, they need to specify their goals and how they're going to achieve those goals, and most importantly, how uncertain the path forward is. And I think, again, Phil making a statement recently that inflation will be 7% sometime later in the year, that's too precise. We, we actually don't know what inflation will be at the end of the year because we can't know what the shocks will be between now and then, nor do we have perfect understanding of the dynamics in the economy. Uh, we have to monitor it. We have to discuss it. It has to be transparent. Everybody has to know what the central bank is thinking. And most importantly, we have to have coordination between fiscal, the fiscal authorities that is the Treasury, and the central bank, because in the end, these two policies are in, inevitably linked very, very closely. And so it has to be coordinated and has to be clear. Warwick, you've, you've got me thinking a little bit about the, the gentle balance in healthcare between uh, diagnostic precision and expressing uncertainty, particularly looking into the future. But I wanted to bring Kristen in at this point. Kristen, I wonder what your thoughts are on the role of the, the Reserve Bank, it, it being fairly central, I think, with the challenge we're facing at the moment. Yeah, when, uh, when Warwick was sharing his views, I was just thinking that uh, I think the RBA's policy actually works in Argentina because and, and it's effectively able to manage expectations because it's independent, because Australia effectively measures inflation, and because there's also a lot of trust in these institutions. And I was thinking back to my own experience in Argentina in 2016 uh, when there was not much, there was questionable independence of, of their reserve bank. Uh, and inflation wasn't being very well measured at all. In fact, there's <laughs> questions about whether um, the, the government wasn't doing a very good job of, of, of recognizing the very, very high costs uh, of living at that time. And as a result, anecdotally, I remember uh, living there and wanting to go for a lunch with my husband. And we took a train out to this lovely town where it was beautiful and sunny. And then we got there and we wanted to go to a restaurant, but the, the restaurant only took cash. Um, and because there was a lack of recognition of these very high costs of living, the ATMs only had uh, denominations of, of uh, pesos to the equivalent of, of $5. And so we walked around in this town for about 35 minutes trying to find an ATM that still had cash in it. 
And in the end, we couldn't actually find one. So as a result, we had to get back on the train, hungry, go back into Buenos Aires to then go home. And because we were unable to find uh, an ATM with cash, we then had to walk an additional 35 minutes home. So it's uh, for me, uh, thinking about war stories, I think of what can go wrong if you aren't measuring inflation well, if you don't have an independent RBA, and if you don't have trust in those institutions. Economy can really go sideways, and it can really engender all sorts of inefficient behavior. So that was just some of the things that occurred to me when Warwick was sharing his thoughts. Kristen, I think that's such a, a fantastic story of how it impacts on how these kinds of policies impact on our everyday lives and, and how it shapes, you know, everything from the, the way we're able to purchase the essential things of life to the, the way we're able to, to go and have a nice lunch when we feel like it. And of course, these debates are emerging in Australia now. The, the ACTU secretary, Sally McManus, has been very unspoken of late, describing it as a fantasy to think that workers can afford rising interest rates. And, and we see, you know, these debates kind of becoming quite intense. One of the the arguments that Sally McManus and others have put forward is that a reason that we don't always see the connection between monetary policy decisions around interest rates and the impacts on on people every day is a lack of diversity in decision-making. The Reserve Bank, I think, now has has gender balance, but it's been criticised for lacking broader diversity. And there has been a suggestion that there should be greater diversity and, in particular, representation of workers. Kristen, I'd love to hear your thoughts on these debates. You know, is is the the diversity of decision makers, particularly on the RBA board, an issue that we need to be paying attention to? I think diversity of decision making in any space, not just the RBA board, is is, is important to ensure that we have a, a representative view of the views of society. So in this regard, yes, I think it's it's very important. And I think the, the treasurer has, has recently called out that that's what he'll be doing, looking to um, have a more diverse board uh, in place. But yes, I think it's important for the for the board, but I also think more generally in society, it's important to have a, a good representation of, of the views of everyone. Um, and this, this proposition, particularly that we have more worker representation on the board as a means of increasing diversity. Warwick, what are your thoughts on that? So this comes to the core of the optimal form of governance of a central bank. And the Australian model up until now has been one not of having experts on the board. It's to have representation from different community groups. So, for example, well, not community groups, but different sectors of the economy. So you always had a miner. You always had a, a um, an agricultural mag- magnate. You used to have a representative of the union movement. The danger of that is they've got to distinguish between their own self-interest for their sector and the national interest. And the reason that they don't publish the minutes of the meeting, the reason they don't publish the votes, is because as soon as you publish the minutes, then the sectoral interests know what their representative has said, and therefore the representative will only say what's in their own sectoral interests. They won't necessarily vote in the national interest. So there's a key governance issue here is, what is the role of the board? And the role of the board is to act in the national interest. And I think having representation which is based on sectoral economic interests is a bad idea. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't get information and input from all different groups in society. Uh, and, and so that's important. But, you know, as a central banker, I don't need to know how wages are negotiated in companies. Just as I don't need to know how you make electricity out of nuclear energy or coal, I just need to have an understanding of how those changes of input costs lead to inflation, which is my current mandate. So I think it's it's misleading to say we should have different community groups on the board if the goal is in the, to act, for a board to act in a national interest. So there's a difference between the information that's brought to the board and, and the composition of the board, in my view. I think you need more experts on the board the experts being not just academics, but people with a variety of different experiences in the community, but who have an understanding of how monetary policy works. It'd be like having a, a, um, a medical board that doesn't have any doctors on it. So they're making decisions about whether certain medicines or certain pra- procedures should be allowed in the medical practice when they have no experience of how these procedures work. So I think I have a very strong view, and I think the reason Australia's done so well is mostly luck because the people that have been chosen, mostly business people, I mean all business people, have been exceedingly good, exceedingly bright, 
and have been able to leave their sectoral interests aside and and make decisions in the national interest because none of it's public. Once you have transparency, which I think is essential for good governments, then that structure, that model structure breaks down completely. Warwick, I think that point about the, the way in which sectoral or other interests can start to drive policymaking in a direction that's that's problematic is is a really important point. And of course, we see that across government and, and, and indeed across society broadly. I do want to follow up and ask you how the, the board of the Reserve Bank thinks about the national interest. Is that in terms of what we might think of as a fairly narrow focus on monetary policy? Or does it also take account of things like the cost of living, things like the impact on the most vulnerable, impacts on on poverty and inequality? Because the national interest can mean very different things to different people and is often driven by our professional position and our professional training. So how are all those things balanced in deciding what the national interest is? So, Sharon, that's a really good question. There is a Reserve Bank Act Uh, I think from 1959, which sets out very clearly three goals uh, for the Reserve Bank. One is um, full employment. Another is stability of the currency, which is the same as price stability, which is the same as as inflation. And a final very vague one called the well-being of the Australian people. Uh, So that's the guiding, that's that's what the bank has been tasked in legislation in the Reserve Bank Act. There's another agreement which is cast between the Treasurer of the day and the Governor of the day, which is a letter of agreement uh, on what the actual mandate to achieve those goals will be. And in recent years, since the early 90s, actually, it's been an agreement to uh, target inflation between 2 to 3% over the cycle, which is somewhat ambiguous because you have to define the cycle, but that's a more narrow mandate. And that's what the bank pursued, particularly when I was on the board from 2001 to 2011 and I should say you notice the inflation rate stayed in the 2 to 3% band during those years. But then after that, and roughly around 2016, people started to worry about financial stability. You know, the housing prices were rising, balance sheets were being stressed. And so the bank sort of started to talk about the well-being of the Australian people as a reason why they weren't tightening policy or loosening policy. And so they started to drift away from that core historical mandate. And there's an open debate about whether that's where the problems we now face lie. But that is what the bank is told to do. And and the independence of the Reserve Bank is a very important institutional contributor to Australia's well-being in general. But in the end, they have to be accountable. These are people that aren't voted in by people. They are people who are appointed by a governor who's been appointed. But really, you have to worry about how accountable the board is. Accountability has improved a lot over the years because now there's a quarterly discussion or testimony to, to the Australian Parliament where the Governor and the senior staff have to talk about the state of the economy and why they're doing what they're doing. But that whole issue of governance structure and accountability and independence are the things that need to be very carefully managed and not damaged by this process when the review occurs. It's a really interesting uh, point to tie uh, the well-being of the Australian uh, population back to economic uh, principles and to the the actions of the Reserve Bank of Australia. Today, of course, we're talking about inflation and the global and the local economic challenges that are here today and are forecast into our future. And we're talking about it because economic policy uh, impacts directly on our life and particularly into the social uh, elements of the life that we lead. As regular listeners will know, before the election, we recorded a value caring mini series. One of my favourite conversations from earlier this year was a conversation we had with uh, Dr. Millie Rooney, a researcher from Tasmania from Australia Remade. We talked to Millie about the public good. Uh, And we talked about the research that she's done, looking at what people want from their life, what sorts of fundamental things are required, things like uh, places to live and safe housing, a healthy environment and income and uh, that provides a dignity of life and a whole range of other elements. Also, the, the, the role of, of policy in creating space for people to contribute, to care and, and to, to uh, connect to each other. 
Sharon and I have often reflected on the conversations we had with Marilyn Waring, a feminist economist from New Zealand last year, where she talked about moving beyond measures like GDP, which she, she was saying was an inadequate measure of economic performance, partly because it was removed from our human experience, the, the sorts of elements that Millie Rooney's research really showed as being central to what Australians are looking for. And so as we we draw this conversation that, that could go for many more hours together, I'd be fascinated to hear from you, Warwick, and from you, Kristen, about your thoughts on whether in order to really reliably provide everyone with these basics of life, should we be considering other economic approaches such as wellbeing economics or donut economic type models at this challenging time in history? Mm. Um, I think as a starting point, as an as an answer to your question, I might start with we're going to have a, a we've racked up a fair bit of, of debt that Warwick pointed out as a result of the pandemic, and we're going to need some way we're going to have to think through some way to pay it off. Uh, and so, at the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute, one thing that often comes up is is that our mandate is is really to advocate for tax reform. Um, and so, in in this respect, I think there are a lot of uh, ways that the current Australian system is is inefficient. Um, for instance, what we know is that there's a huge gap between how we tax income, um, which is disproportionately, in a sense, brought in from working families. There's a disconnect from how we tax income and how we tax wealth. Um, and as a result, it, it engenders all sorts of um, inequalities with how what we would call horizontal inequalities, how much you're taxing a working family with two successful professionals versus perhaps a non-working person with millions in the bank. Uh, so that's kind of the difference between how Australia would tax income versus wealth. Uh, and so I think going forward, uh, at least in this respect, instead of looking towards alternative models to solve solutions, I think we actually already know some of the tools in our tool belt um, and, and refocusing how we might tax income, tax savings, and, and taxing wealth, uh, I think would be part of that. Warwick, you've commented as well, I think, on on the, the importance of uh, good public policy outside just the, the actions of the Reserve Bank. What are your thoughts about how we approach the challenge that's in front of us now? So I think it is important to take a broader perspective on measurement of well-being. I've been involved quite a lot with Carol Graham at the Brookings Institution, who does some really interesting work on happiness, measuring happiness. Um, what you find, though, in a lot of that work is that the GDP is actually a reasonable approximation. It moves with a lot of these other indicators, but that's not sufficient. That's not where our target should be. But given what we are, where we're starting from, it's probably the, the best place to start. But we do need to improve the data, the data and the measurement of some of these other issues and build them into the policy framework. The second issue I'd say is it's important that the wellbeing is, in, is, is taken into account, but that's really, in my view, in the hands of the elected officials. And that comes, as um, Kristen has said, it's in the hands of the fiscal authorities, how we tax, how we spend. Those sorts of issues are what fiscal authorities should care about because politicians are running fiscal policy. The Reserve Bank, if they start to have a mandate which is too, too wide and can be used to justify any policy position, it unhinges the anchor of, uh, of inflation. And that's a really costly uh, thing to un to unhinge, uh, as Christian said, we have many examples: Argentina, Germany after the uh, after the First World War. Many examples where once you, the central bank loses its focus, the the societal costs are enormous. And so, I think it's important not to overload a central bank with too many mandates. But having said that, I think the issue wave raised about well being absolutely critical, and that should be the focus of those people in politics who have been elected to improve the well being of the people who vote for them. Warwick and Kristen, this has been a fantastic conversation. It's been so informative. And I think we've, we've ranged from what I described at the beginning of some Economics 101 definitions right through to far deeper issues. We would love to have you back down the track to talk about these issues in more detail because we could have talked for a very long time today. But for now, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to be on the show yet again. And any time, I'm very happy to be on this wonderful podcast. Fantastic. Thanks. We will hold you to that, Warwick. It's wonderful to have you with us. Lovely. Thank you. <laughs> Sharon, I think we've heard from two outstanding economists today helping us to understand 
more about the challenges that we're facing now and I think offering some really important perspectives into the future. Uh, listening to Warwick describe the, the crisis of the 1970s when inflation was highly problematic and the events that led up to that really showed me again the importance of understanding historical precedents and using that information, I think, to inform the challenges that we face now. And the two of them did such a superb job in painting the interconnected, interrelated challenges and the way in which this manifests now in the economic numbers that we see uh, and that cause us all understandable levels of concern. I, I agree, Annie Greta. I think that was a great conversation. And for me, it was a really useful conversation in demystifying some of those terms that are heard very commonly, you know, from fiscal policy through to inflation. Um, and I think that's really valuable because often we hear those terms being used, um, but, but without the clarity that Warwick and Kristen gave in terms of what they actually mean. I also, it also struck me when we were, were listening to Warwick and to Kristen, you know, the, the different approaches that are available to us as we face what is currently an economic crisis, but also the social impacts of that and, and a climate crisis and the differences between those who, who hold the very strong view that we, we have the tools available to us to make the changes that we need, um, which was the view that the Kristen put forward when she talked very powerfully about the way taxation can be a driver for change of the greater equity. Um, and on the other hand, those who say we actually need whole-scale reform of the, of, or, or whole-scale transformation of the way we think about these challenges and we need new models um, to help us move forward. And I think those those debates are so important and so interesting and we will continue to explore them in this mini-series but more broadly in, in all of the conversations that we have here on the pod. This podcast um, is produced by policyforum.net and we'll leave a link to any of the publications and sources that we've mentioned today in the show notes as we always do. Thank you so much for joining us for this, this episode. And do stay with us as we continue on with, with this mini-series where we're looking at the, the crisis of cost of living and the impacts of inflation. If you did enjoy this episode, don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with what's happening on the pod. And if you're feeling generous, please do leave us a review. We also love to hear from our audience, so do reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That's at APPS Policy Forum. You can email us at podcast at policyforum.net or catch up with us via our Facebook group. You can find us by putting Policy Forum Pod into the Facebook search bar. We'll be back next week with the second episode in this mini-series, so do join us for that. But from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. From me, Anna Greta Hunter, see you next week. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.